No, no, I'm going to get up on my soapbox here. Where does she get off doing that? Sending us to, someone should put her on a boat to Rwanda with one paddle. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Stella Dadzi, who is a founder of and member of um, OAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, and is best known for the heart of, ra- of the race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, which won the 1985 Martin Luther King Award for Literature, and which she co-authored with Beverly Bryan and Suzanne Scaff. She has written widely on curriculum development and good practice with black adult learners and other minorities. She is well known for her contribution for, to tackling youth racism and working with racist perpetrators and is a key contributor to the development of anti-racist strategies within schools and colleges and services. So please give everyone a warm welcome. Wow. That was such a good introduction. I'm, I'm going to get rid of half of my introduction now because that was that was even better than mine. <laughs> um, welcome to this live recording of the Surviving Society podcast. Um, just a little introduction to Surviving Society if you haven't listened to the show before. Um, Surviving Society is a political podcast produced from a sociological perspective and invites academics, writers and community organisers to reflect on the local and global politics of race and class. We see our work as an example of what we have described as sociological podcasting. In this way, Surviving Society contributes to other forms of creative modes of communicating scholarship and assisted in the kind of knowledge production needed in heightened periods of political calamity. At its core, Surviving Society is part of a vast body of existing scholarship and emerging scholarship, work and art produced to contest the grand narratives which have come to dominate our understandings of society. It is our belief that these forms of knowledge production have the potential to make more legible the interconnections that underpin our most pressing issues. I need to make sure I say this, otherwise George is going to kill me. Please, can you, if you have social media, follow us on Twitter, our little Twitter handles here, um, Instagram, and also our new YouTube channel, which launched this week. That was such an amazing introduction to Stella, but I am also going to do another introduction just to, just to introduce what we're going to be talking about today. So. Stella is a historian, activist, educator, and founding member of OAD. Stella is a revolutionary of the black British feminist movement and a trailblazer of the black radical tradition in the United Kingdom and beyond. Stella is obviously one of the authors of The Heart of the Race and more recently, A Kick in the Belly. It's so exciting to have you here. I'm actually really nervous, guys. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> I think you might be able to tell. It's, um, it's been a while since we've done an event with so many people and obviously Stella is an absolute pioneer. So. Um, I'm going to get started with our first question and hopefully be less nervous as we, as we go through. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm just going to read from the draft constitution of OAD um, from 1978, Stella, um, and then we're going to talk a bit about this, this caption here. So, throughout history, black women have made an equal and significant contribution to the development of our people, the richness of our various cultures, to our resistance against colonial pressure, and to our struggles for national liberation. Black women have been and continue to be strong, resilient and courageous, despite the fact that we are the most oppressed group in any society we live in. Our race, our sex and our low economic status have placed us at the bottom of the heap in Britain and throughout the world. It was in order to fight against this triple oppression as we experience it in Britain that OAD was formed. So, Stella, how feasible is it for us to talk about the material and lived experiences of black women in the way you were able to to do in OAD and later in the heart of the race in more contemporary Britain? And we're thinking here about the conversations that at times have been hijacked by individualised and neoliberal agendas when it comes to talking about black women. The exam question that did, oh my God. Um, how feasible is it to talk about it? It's definitely still feasible, isn't it? Nothing's changed significantly enough over the last 40 years for us to really relax and say these issues don't affect us anymore. I think that if we look around the world, we can see that black women continue to be the most oppressed group in our society and also um, in others. 
Um, it's easy to get fooled, isn't it? Because we see the Beyonces and we see the Meghan Markle. Um, good on them. I'm not, I'm not a hater. But um, I think what happens is we, we are fed this diet of um, rarefied black achievement. And that feeds into this sense that, okay, then whatever's wrong, it must be you you know, because it can't be the society, because look at these people, look at where they've reached. And I think that's quite a dangerous um, uh, belief, really. Um, you know, what has changed is the way we communicate about these issues and the way we organize around them. And, um, you know, if you think back to the 70s and 80s, there was no internet. It was a twinkle in some general's eye, wasn't it? Wasn't it the army that developed the internet or something? There was no social media, there was no um, identity politics, which I see as one of the, 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 the things that were birthed by, by the internet. And um, there was no cancel culture either. So it was a very different context in which we were coming together to address the issues that concerned us. And um, I suppose the other change is that the state was less effective at co-opting, you know, the messages and, and the, the campaigns that, that concerned us. And by this I mean they were less familiar with the language of anti-racism, the language of Me Too, the language of gay pride. Um, I was in Waitrose the other day, I got the shock of my life. They had this, um, this thing, you know where you, the thing that barriers off your shopping from the next person? They had this thing in rainbow colour saying Waitrose supports gay pride. And I'm thinking, well, Okay, what does that mean in practice? Basically, it's a marketing ploy, isn't it? It doesn't mean anything, it means jack shit. Can I say that? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, even the Tory party, you know, uh, they all know how to market themselves using that kind of language. And I think that's very confusing sometimes because it makes you think that somehow, well, if the problem hasn't gone away, the people who need to know are dealing with it, when actually those organizations are part of the problem. So um, I think, you know, we need to stay grounded, we need to stay real. And my starting point is if you live on a housing estate in Hackney, if you survive by, you know, scavenging on some rubbish tip in Lagos or um, selling your labour for a pittance in a Bangladeshi workshop, um, you don't need to think too hard to realise that these women in particular, but not exclusively, are still absolutely at the bottom of the pecking order. So to answer your question, absolutely, yeah, that, that, that constitutional statement, it's quite good, isn't it? It needs to be revived and, and could be quite a good organising principle because, you know, in the same way, black feminism sometimes get kind of sidetracked into, you know, how many of us are on the panel or how visible are we on the media? And You know, when you look at feminism, you see an interesting debate between radical feminists and liberal feminists, or what they came to be known as. And I suppose to characterize liberal feminist thought, it's all about, you know, a few more women in the boardroom, a few more women, you know, in, in positions of power in parliament or whatever. But actually, the, the, the real question is, does that impact on the lives of the vast majority of the women? I don't think so. So I, I would argue that if we think about anti-racism and our struggle to um, demand race equality and, and, and racial justice, then we should be thinking about it in the same way. We shouldn't get sidetracked by the fact that a few, you know, famous faces suggest that, you know, that's fine, everybody can, can, can achieve. Actually, achievement isn't what, what fires my guns, really. It's not achievement, you know. I don't care who, who's, how many billions somebody's got. What matters to me is, are we bringing up the, the, the kinds of women that I've mentioned? Because if not, then we, you know, we need to rethink where, where our priorities are. Hi, everyone. Um, Stella, in thinking of that then, um, how can we get better at meeting people where they're at? And what skills do you think could get us to that place? And where, can we, where we can both empathize and support each other's learning about society? So I'm thinking here about um, political education, what steps we can do to kind of educate people about 
And yeah, just to follow up on that, like you mentioned a few things just then when you were talking about um, cancel culture and thinking about work that you've done in the past, people that aren't necessarily convinced of, in the way that maybe a lot of us are in this room about um, how we think about race, class and colonialism. Like how do we meet people with they are, where they are without being apathetic? Um, does, that make, does that make sense? You know, I, I'm a historian, I think you've mentioned that, so I think history is a good place to start when you think about um, educational traditions and what works and what doesn't. And um, I'm minded of um, a trip I did to South Africa in 94, where everybody was buzzing with this, this notion that had really kept a lot of anti-apartheid activists going, this notion of each one teach one, yeah? Each of us has that kind of revolutionary duty, really, to pass on our knowledge, which is why I'm so um, worried about cancel culture, because I think people should have the right to express their views and express their doubts and to say I disagree without feeling that they're going to be completely, you know, cancelled out. Um, so anti-apartheid, Black Panthers, there was, there was that kind of driving energy um, and it was a kind of individual responsibility that I think many of us felt that it was our duty to, you know, pass on what knowledge we had and to reason with people and try to get them on board. So I think, you know, a lot of important learning starts in our homes, it starts in our communities. Those of you who are parents will know that, you know, you, you lay the groundwork, don't you, with your children and you hope to God that the school ain't going to undo it all or their peers, or the internet, or whatever else is, is um, influencing their, their, their thinking. Um, we need to maintain that attitude, I think, if we're to really address what has become a real over-reliance on Google. You know, um, I know a lot of people who haven't got an O-level biology, but boy, when you talk to them about COVID, you know, you just go, wow, <laughs> where did they learn all that? They learnt it in sound bites, and so you ask me what is what, what are the the skills we need. The first one on my list is the ability to fact check, and to me that goes right back to the classroom. It's those of you who are teachers teaching your children, your young people, your pupils, however you describe them, to be able to find out things for themselves, to think for themselves, to challenge, to question, you know, to research, to analyse, and not be reliant on other people to kind of fill their empty jug heads with, with some kind of pre-formed pre knowledge. So that was one of my, my thoughts. What else was I going to say? Um, yeah, so the ability to fact check, the ability not to get sidetracked and seduced, because I think that's, that's very easy to do in that social media context. And I, I don't want to have a rant about um, black young people who don't get vaccinated, because I'm sure... Um, those views are not necessarily all shared by you, or indeed, you know, um, there'll be people who, who will disagree with me, and that's fine too. But I think it's quite insidious. And somebody I was talking to in the States recently sort of pointed this out to me. They said, you know, this, this message that had gone out in our community, black young people have bought into in their droves that you shouldn't get vaccinated. You know, it's a big, big pharma conspiracy. We know about big pharma. We've been campaigning about that for real. Don't have a problem with them questioning that and, and, and saying, hang on, wait a minute, what's this about? But I remember that the first black enslaved man to teach the Americans about inoculation, he was a black man. And, you know, his master made the money out of it, but he was the one who said, you know those little nicks we do on our children? We're inoculating them against smallpox. And that was actually used in, what was it, the Boston epidemic or something? I can't remember the date. To actually, you know, save tens of thousands of lives. Now, any of you, and I suspect looking around the audience, you will get me, you will know in our countries of origin how disease can decimate a community that has no access to healthcare. So that message, don't get vaccinated, don't protect those you love, it could well be, here's a conspiracy theory, could well be coming from some right-wing think tank, we don't know. So um, I'm not saying it is, don't quote me. I, all I'm saying is that when we are fed stuff on the internet, which is the first port of call these days for people who are, who are trying to self-educate anyway, we have to be very, very um, able to fact check, to source it, to find out who's saying what, and to be really clear 
about the ability to make up your own minds and not to give in to peer pressure and all those other things that can influence our thinking. Um, okay, what else? Yeah, I think the other skill is the ability to listen and to empathise. You know, um, the best skill of communication is the ability to shut up and listen. You know, we learn that as parents, don't we? <laughs> we just have to listen and let people express themselves in the way that feels most comfortable and most appropriate to them. And I think that applies whether you're teaching primary school kids or whether you work in university. I've met some very, I'm gonna say this because I know some academics in the audience. I've met some very arrogant academics who kind of think that they're the, you know, they're source of all knowledge and they stride in the room and everybody's gotta shut up and listen. And no, that's not learning. That, that's, that's something else, I don't know what you call it, but it's not learning to me. So. I think, yeah, people should be able to express their doubts and their fears and to um, do that at whatever level they're engaging in the educational process, at any age as well, because we're never too, too old. I've got a few provocations, I think, um, Stella, that I don't, I'm, I'm going to sort of put them out there. And it might be that we come back to them at the end, maybe when we're discussing with the audience. But I think a lot of people in the audience are uh, university workers as well. And there's some things that we've sort of, we've been discussing and talking about, particularly with people having the space to um, talk about how they feel about things, but also so-called cancel, cancel culture. And I guess for us, as in academia in particular, we have, it's a very fine line between people being able to start where they are and question things, and also bad faith actors, and people that use within our like very small world of yeah, sociology, for example, people that use that language often the people that are actually not getting cancelled and that are sit, sat, not sat on the rain telling them telling people how hard their experience has been as academics that want to speak out on issues so it's i i, I hear what you're saying and I, I guess yeah it's a provocation rather than a question but i think there might there might be some questions from the audience later about how we grapple with that because it is a really fine line and the people that, that are tending to claim that are the ones that have the most power at the moment um 100% agree, you know, I'm not talking about free-for-all, you know, there have to be boundaries and there have to be ground rules that we all buy into, which is about respect and, and, and you know, avoiding certain language and so on. I'm not, I'm not talking about it on that level, I'm saying, you know, if you're in a classroom, if you're an educator, if you're a teacher, the worst thing you can do is make someone feel that they, they shouldn't ask the question, you know, and obviously as a teacher, your role is to lay down the parameters and to say, you know, within these boundaries. I've worked with some really racist kids in my life, you know, kids who walk in and say, who are you? You know, and I, I won't quote them because, um, um, you know, just the language. But, you know, to be able to reason with that youth, to me, was one of my proudest moments as a teacher. I said, okay, all right then, let's hear you. What is it? You know, and you say, oh, yeah, you know, black people always moaning. If you don't like it, get back to where you came from. And I said, okay. Let's start with where I come from. Do you think I dropped from a planet? Do you think I was, I'm here because, because I chose to be, because of the weather? You know, and you have that conversation at that level, and slowly you see that you thinking, okay, maybe she's got a point. You know, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you know, people who think that they can be racist or homophobic or sexist or whatever else. You know? um, but when it's a young mind, personally, I'm prepared to give give them a bit more leeway, you know, because everybody learns at their own pace, don't they? They don't all know everything at the same time, and some of them have come, I know from the work I did with youth years ago in Bermondsey, this, you know, we were really slated. What are you doing working with working class white youth who, who are known racist perpetrators? You should be putting your energies into the black community. Well, actually, that work was really important because they were the ones who were setting women's saris alight at bus stops, and pelting us with eggs and doing all kinds of other things. And to be able to, to just engage with those young people at their own level, using their own language, was, was really, really powerful. You know? That, to me, is what education is about. I, thank you, Stella. No, I did, and just to be clear, I did know that that was your position, but I just wanted to, to get the groundings to make sure, to make sure that everyone knew where, yeah, where, where we were coming from with that. What are some of the key similarities and differences you see amongst political movements over the past 40 years? And are there recurring issues you think it's worth us paying closer attention to now? Um, thinking about, I guess, the left here, quite a common conversation that we have amongst our broad coalitions is that we're 
fractured, broken? What what do you think that that's a, something that's been a recurring issue? Do you see things that are that are similar to the, the previously? What could be learned from from some of these? I, and, and again, like when I talk about political movements, these are so it's so broad, it's so so broad. But yeah. Okay, um, it is a broad question as well, isn't it? I mean. You know, we've only got to look at the shenanigans in recent weeks and months to know that we've got the same very small, privileged elite who run things. You know, that ain't changed. That's that's one of the constants. Um, and I don't know, I'm a child of civil rights. You know, I, I'm born in the 50s. I grew up through the 60s and 70s. I saw what was happening in America. I saw what was going on here. and. Certainly, you know, when we look at the, the murders of people like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, name the women as well, um, or if we think about our own experience in this country, Mark Duggan, Cynthia Jarrett, Cherry Gross, you know, we can go back and back and find examples of black people who have been murdered at the hands of the police. And so there again, you know, you've got a, a, a constant, a theme that seems to keep coming up, doesn't matter how much we shout um, or take to the streets to protest, you know? Um, and, you know, closer to home, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that a kid, a young woman, can come into school and be strip-searched. You know, I mean, you know, what, what bemuses me, having worked in this field for so long, is that, you know, if we were able, some academics should do this, quantify the hours, the person hours, the, the, the physical and material resources that have gone into things like the Scarman report and the McPherson report and all the recommendations that came out of it and all the hours of staff time where we've sat around tables dotting the I's and crossing the T's on equalities policies and that still goes on. You know, you, you, you just wonder sometimes, like, what is it, two steps forward, one step back? Now, I don't want to sit here and be negative because I, I focus on the two steps forward personally, but... You know, it is depressing sometimes and disheartening, certainly for someone in my generation, when you look at these things and think, wow, I thought we'd, we'd, we'd dealt with this. <laughs> Back in the 80s, we've been talking about the same issues. Um, another uh, glaring similarity that has to be named is the attitude to refugees and migrants. You've only got to look at the, the way you, and I'm not, I'm not hating on Ukrainians, don't get me wrong, but the way the Ukrainian population has been welcomed with open arms in this community and compare that with the experience of somebody from Afghanistan or Syria or Eritrea, you name it, and you can see that the double standards still prevail and that we're still grappling as a community with really pernicious legislation. And I have to say, I have to name and shame her because I tell you what, there's a good example of what I was saying before. So yeah, we got Pretty Patel, huh? You know, like where they asked, does she get off? The child of an immigrant? No, no, I'm going to get up on my soapbox here. Where does she get off doing that? Sending us to someone should put her on a boat to Rwanda with one paddle. Seriously, that that immigration legislation, that separation of those of us who are so-called patriots. That was the first law, wasn't it, in '62? If you had a, mother, a grandmother or a grandfather who was born of approved association with the country, basically, if you were from South Africa, Canada, Australia, you were welcome, but the rest of you, you know, stay back. That is still going on to this day, and maybe the people who are experiencing that fortress Britain mentality are a slightly more diverse demographic. You know, demographic. That's that's very clear, and within that demographic, demographic. Sorry, you get some. Pretty white faces, actually, if you think about the Eastern European pre-Brexit discussion about Polish builders and so on. You know, it's kind of all getting a bit blurry around the edges, but the, the key message seems to me very, very consistent. So, yeah, you asked about the similarities. Um, differences. One of the key differences that's come to mind for me recently in, in the light of all this hoo-ha about the train strikes is the decimation of the trade union movement. You're talking about the left. I sometimes kind of, when I hear people say the left, I think, well, what does that mean, actually? You know, I, I think I think Keir Starmer's lost the plot. 
I've lost the plot, I'm sorry. Um, you may not agree with me, I'm not suggesting you should, but personally, you know, I have grown up thinking of myself as someone who's going to stand on the picket line and support the right of workers. And, I can, and although it's a bit harder to define what working class is, or even to define your own class background sometimes, the power of tens of thousands of working people coming together and saying no, whether that's no, we don't accept this low wage, or no, we will not accept this cargo from a fascist state that is being off offloaded on this, whatever, you know, that is powerful. And I think if we had to learn anything from the past, it's that we need to find ways to, if we can't reproduce that, at least, you know, find other ways of bringing people together around those kind of banners. Um, okay. Um, I've said we've seen a lot more visibility, so I'm not going to go into that. But, yeah, I think, you know, um, there are lots of similarities. There's lots of differences. And... Um, you know, it is incumbent on new generations, younger generations, to pick up the banner, really. And that's not to say that our lot had all the answers, you know. But there's a lot of learning that can be done, both from our mistakes as well as our successes. And, you know, I'm only here today because I really believe passionately that it is incumbent on people from my generation to keep that flag flying and say, right, over to you, over to you. This is what we did. I'm not saying I'm done yet, but you know, when I think about the energy of, of a group like this, it's that it's really powerful. You know, organizers were telling me who's come and where you've come from. It's brilliant, you know, and I really do believe in what I said earlier, each one teach one. Go forth, take it back, you know. And if they ain't teaching this stuff in your schools, tell them they ought to be. You know? That's the way we do it, isn't it? That's the way we've always done it. Hey Stella, like, again, it's probably maybe a provocation of what you said earlier. Um, I guess one of the differences is neoliberalism, right? So we're dealing with a highly individualized society, um, a very fractured society. So how do you kind of go about healing this? Because you have so many different pockets, really. Like, how do you go about healing that, those rifts to kind of create a collective action you had maybe in the 70s, 60s? Trying not to romanticize that as well. I think we spoke about that when you on the show, Stella, before, thinking about um, the experiences of women, particularly during those times, like, sometimes, yeah, that romanticisation. Like, yeah, it's definitely yeah. more nuanced than that, but yeah. in general, in general terms, like... I think that's quite a difficult question, you know. Boom. Um, yeah. Um, I, I don't profess to have all the answers I never have, but um, um, I've already said that I think there's a lot to be learned from history. Um, I think I've already said that you know, well, if, if I think about my own experience of working with teachers, um, you can minimize the rifts by teaching things properly, you know, and I'm not, I'm not naming names, but you know, what comes to mind is, you know, a teacher who says to her kids, you know, we're gonna learn about slavery today, it's Black History Month, White History Year, and um, we're gonna all come in dressed as, Slaves. She probably would have used the term slave rather than enslaved people. You know, now that is not learning in my view. It may be well intentioned, but it's that kind of stuff that creates fracture and dissent. And when I've worked with mixed groups in classrooms, um, it has always been a principle of mine that if I'm going to talk to young people about enslavement. I don't want my white kids walking out of the classroom feeling like they've been under some kind of guilt trip for the last hour, you know? And the way you do that is by reminding them about gender, reminding them about class, reminding them about the commonalities rather than the differences, so that you don't perpetuate this kind of us and them mentality, you know, where the black kids all go out feeling angry and, and, and ready to, to, to do battle, and the white kids go out think, with some kind of um, guilt trip on their, their heads and, and what was it some young woman said to me the other day, that's white survivor guilt in it miss, she said oh blimey <laughs> yes but I don't want to generate that, what I want it, you know, I don't want your guilt I want your activism, I want your support so if I'm going to do that then the way to do that is not to alienate people it's not to just say you're irrelevant to my struggle or I'm not having, you know what was it you were telling me earlier about you know young people, women who wouldn't work with you because you were it's just 
No, that's not the way forward. I don't want a society that is effectively reproducing apartheid. Um, in terms of organising, yeah, it's just about really trying to start with the commonalities rather than the differences. And I'm not saying people should be in denial, because we are different and we are diverse, but I do think identity politics, as we've come to understand it, as opposed to the politics of identity, which is a very different thing, yeah? Um, identity politics can just feed into this kind of, you know, I'm only gonna deal with people who look like me or use the same hair product or whatever it is that people are into, you know? The danger there is that if I only speak to people who are like-minded, who believe what I do, then how am I ever gonna experience challenge? And how am I ever gonna make connections with other people who may have equally useful contributions to make to my own struggle, you know? Um, I'm thinking about, um, okay, let me think of something quickly off the top of my head. Yeah, you know, um, the way sometimes you hear Caribbean people, African-Caribbean people talk about African-African people. Come on, get real, you know? That is a classic case of divide and rule. You need to know your history, don't you? If you're not gonna feed into that, you know? So, um, yeah, I guess in a roundabout way, commonalities rather than differences. Get rid of the guilt trip and the cancel culture so that people can have a proper discussion and um, be clear about um, what you stand for, really, and try to, try to encourage people to join you rather than alienate people because they disagree with you. Does that answer your question? Yeah, because I, I, I didn't really understand. I, it. Get, I guess I guess what I'm trying to think of, like, so I think when I see people communicating, especially online, I'm trying to find out people make tr competing truth claims, right? And you have these kind of polarized arguments, and no one gets anywhere. And the research, you end up researching different things, and they arrive at different truths. And so, how do you go about establishing the truth when you're in these environments? So I'm thinking particularly online, where many people speak, so Twitter, whatever. You know what I mean? The truth, even that, that, yeah, log off. Even, even the notion that there's a, there's a single truth out there is kind of hard to get your head around sometimes, isn't it? Because, you know, again, as a historian, when I come to any piece of historical research, the first thing I start with is there's gonna be different voices, different class interests, different economic standpoints, you know, all those different, that miasma of, of different viewpoints that feed into our perception of what might have happened. I love that quote. Um, now, don't ask me who said it because I can't remember. Somebody might know. History is a child's box of letters from which we can make any word we choose. Yeah? Now, I hope that doesn't sound too liberal because I'm not saying that, like, yeah, 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 any, any version goes. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we have to be careful that um, we don't just sort of. Um, believe there's only one single version of whatever it is we're dealing with. And that involves a degree of open-mindedness. Um, and you have to balance that, don't you? Um, open-mindedness, readiness to learn, to hear new perspectives, but also a kind of grounding in your own sense of what is right and wrong and what constitutes justice. And I think somewhere between those two polars you can come up with, with a, a reasonable response. I'm not that tech litic. What's the word? Tech lit. Well, I am, you know. I mean, I can Google and I have WhatsApp and all of that. But, you know, I'm not on Twitter and Instagram and I don't really engage with that. A, because I grew up in a world where I didn't have to. B, because the idea of following somebody or being followed is just bizarre to me. I find that absolutely bizarre. And um, I don't want to know what you had for breakfast or when you took your dog. I really don't. Life's too short. You know, there's some very powerful voices, aren't there, on the internet, and they're very persuasive. And I think I can only reiterate what I said earlier, which is we need to teach ourselves to be able to fact-check, to be able to seek out new voices, and not to just be persuaded or seduced by, you know, single-issue identity politics. Yeah, and I mean, if anyone listens to the show, you'll know this is a topics we talk about quite a lot, but just to... To, just to reiterate as well, we've, we've got to think about power here, we've got to think about how much money there is behind 
right the right to clear that online like if I don't know if anyone saw info wars this week like saying about how much they were making like per day in 2018 anyway so it's none of it when we when we're talking about people online arguing like just making sure that we're not positioning it as any kind of level of equity and like it's about power and money and capitalism and yeah often high level sexism as well but has anyone got any questions before we get on to the final two oh. Uh, yes, my name is Deborah. Um, that's all you need to know, really. Um, the um, what you were talking about in terms of you know the the if what is truth. It just reminded me of Audrey Lord saying there's no single um, struggle because there's no single stories. That there's no single truth. There are all sorts of things. But that's not where I'm going with this. I want to I want to ask you, someone who's been involved in the struggle for so very long. Um, you know, in my opinion, one of our leading black feminists, and you know, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you how you how you cope yourself, bringing it back to yourself. How how do you look after yourself in the struggle? Because the struggle is ex we, we experience it in the mind, or or we try to make sense of it in the mind, and we fully experience it in the body. How do you look after Stella in all of this? What's your self-care? That's a good question. You know, I quite often get asked this question, you know, and quite often in a historical sense, like, what did you do for self-care when you were in OAD? And, you know, we didn't even have that language. We didn't have access to that language. So it's kind of... Um, it's an interesting question because I, I'm not sure we even gave much thought about it. We smoked, we did all the things you shouldn't do. And, you know, here I am still saying, some people who did a lot less self-care, they're still, they're, you know, six foot under. So I, I guess, you know, there's, there's a kind of balance, isn't there, between, you know, being so precious that you won't breathe somebody's air and recognising that you need to stay alive in order to, to be useful. Um, what do I do for self-care? Um, a, long, a lot of people don't know this, but alongside my career as a teacher and as a person who went around the world doing this, this work, I taught fitness. And part of that was just pure economics. I was a single parent, I had to feed my kid. And do you know what? I used to go to these classes after I had my child, you know, and you all try and get your figure back. And I used to look at them and think, I can do that. You know, she's just prancing around and da 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 da. And of course, when I did it, I was humbled because it's not easy. But yeah, I'd. I'd you know, I'd throw off my working clothes, I'd stick on my tracksuit and I'd go Tottenham Green, I worked for 10, 20 years, I worked at YMCA in Crouch End, I worked all over North London teaching people fitness. And um, I'll give you a moment, I'll give you a moment. In the 90s, I worked in Bosnia. Um, I won't go into how, because I actually wanted to be in South Africa, but I got the short straw, so I ended up in Bosnia. And um, we, we organised, we didn't have much money, but we organised this study camp for women. And everybody had to bring a skill and we were all sharing it. So one of the things I said is, okay, well, I'll do a bit of fitness with them. And I did this class called Wake Up and Stretch. And there were all these Bosnian ladies sort of knocking on the tent and saying, Stella, we are waiting for you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway, some women arrived from Sarajevo a couple of days into our event. And they were like, you know, absolutely stiff as boards. They'd smuggled their kids out through a tunnel. You know, they'd lived with sniper fire. They were absolutely stressed to the max. And I remember walking into this tent, we were doing this teaching in tent, and thinking, wow, you know. And none of these women had ever learned how to lie on the floor in the corpse position, take a deep breath, close their eyes, tense up from the bottom and tense back down from the top and just learn the skill to relax. And I remember sort of four days afterwards seeing the physical difference on these women's faces. Still had to go back to the war. But, you know, those small things, the ability to keep yourself fit, taking time out to meditate, to look at the stars, to appreciate nature while it lasts, um, to love the people around you, to engage, to socialise. I mean, I don't think I'm telling anybody any, anything that you know you would, probably wouldn't say back to me, but that's how I look after me. 
And I have been asked, have you ever been into therapy? Well, yeah, I've done it a couple of times. I've always gone in with the view, if this don't work in 10, 10 weeks, I'm out of here. I'm not doing the Woody Allen thing, you know. What, 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 how was your therapy, Mr. Allen? Low. <laughs> not doing that. You know, you can deal with this now or I'm out of here. And sometimes it kind of is like a permeation. It's like percolates through, doesn't it? At the time, you think, this is a load of rubbish. He wants me to punch cushions. But after a while, you realise that might, might have worked. But actually, the most powerful therapists in my life have been my women friends. You know, my, my aunties, my stepmom, my sister, when, when she and I are talking. Um, you know, all those people around you who, who make you who you are and who help to define you. I can't really give a better answer than that. I hope it helps. Any more questions? Hi, thank you so much um, for this conversation and, and for all of your work. My name is Natasha. I have a question about um, Pretty Patel, Kemi Baynock, other uh, women of color in public life that whose opinions I disagree with. And I, I feel quite uncomfortable. This is an honest question. I, I, I don't mean to criticize, but I feel quite uncomfortable with some of the discourse around Pretty Patel that you know she's an immigrant, so she should know about the lives of immigrants, or she should have compassion for immigrants. And if if she doesn't, then she should be on a boat. You know, do have they not earned the right to be as racist as white men? <laughs> um, how how do we how do we understand like? Um, how do we engage with their opinions that, that we find racist and problematic and you know, abuse human rights while also kind of not uh, holding them to a different standard because they're brown women? I ain't holding her to a different standard because there's a standard I expect of everybody, white or black, immigrant or not. You know, I'm absolutely not going to tiptoe around her because she defines herself as black or uh, what is it, a person of colour or whatever else, no way am I going to tiptoe around it, I'm going to call it out. Um, as I would if, if, some, if a white colleague came out with that, that stuff, because how else are we to move forward? You know, I've often had di discussions with colleagues in, in educational contexts where they say, you know, um, a black colleague of mine said something really outrageous but I didn't want to say anything because I thought she might think I was racist if I called her out. To me, there's nothing more racist than treating that woman differently because she's black. That is the definition of discrimination. And not calling her out because she's black or because you think she might play the race card or whatever other excuse you might have doesn't, doesn't really cut it for me. Um, now, I always preface my comments by saying, you may disagree with me. You may think she's the best thing since sliced bread. Happy for you to hold that position, but don't lay it on me because I disagree and I will happily dis discuss with you why I think that as a child of an immigrant who presumably did grow up with some exposure to the discussions around her family table, she would have more sensitivity and more understanding of what it means to be so desperate that you take your child on a dinghy that is already leaking when you step onto it and risk that journey, only to be told, get out, you're not welcome, you can go to one of the poorest countries in Africa and see if you can survive there. Well, you wouldn't get out of your own countries that day. No, not having that. Um, so yeah, I hear you, and you know, I'm not a hater, I, I absolutely, um, even though I don't always agree with her politics, I would stand up for Diane Abbott, you know, receiving all that hate mail and being at the target, you know, I wouldn't be in any way encouraging that kind of response. I've already made it very clear I don't like cancel culture. I'd rather have a debate with her. But I think we have to, we have to be very clear that we have a right, if we see injustice, if we see inequality, if we see wrongdoing, particularly if it's our own people, to have that discussion with them and to call them out if we think that they're doing wrong. Thank you, Stella. It might be a slightly unpopular opinion, but I think in contemporary Britain, I think I possibly do hold them to a different or higher, different standard because there's capital to be made amongst people of colour that choose the, the direction that Pretty Patel and Kemi are going in. There's capital, there's money, there's power. Like, so if we start from that basis, then we can see why this, this 
we're gonna get we're, we're gonna carry on getting more and more um, pretty patels and it's more and more important to yeah follow the politics that you're talking about here Salah. Yeah, I just add that you know a lot of those people got into those positions I'm not saying because they were black you know because I do believe that we should be able to get into those positions because we're good you know and she might be very good on some levels but um, you know that is a consideration and that's quite often a marketing ploy you know look at what I was saying about the Tory party earlier you know, whoever would have thought they'd have a line-up like that? Yeah. Someone from Iran, some, you know, it's amazing. And I doubt any of them will actually get the position. Because the leadership is not, you know, the people in Parliament, not necessarily the people who are voting in the communities. But it's kind of an interesting turn-up for the book. And that means to me, we have to hold them even more to account in a way, because they're there on that ticket, you know. And at some point, and on some levels, they're being asked to represent me, to be my voice. And if she's going to speak on my behalf, she needs to get it right. That, don't get me started on the other one, Kemi. <laughs> yeah, not today. <laughs> not today. <laughs> I think it is important to just come to one of the questions that I did send you beforehand about divesting from party politics, how important that is, and whether that is something that we should be doing. I never joined any political party because I always had, had issues with them. But, um, you know, again, I go back to Malcolm X. You know when he said, by any means necessary? He wasn't just talking about, you know, taking up a gun. He was actually saying we need to be there at every level. We need to have a voice in every forum. That's my understanding of what he was saying anyway. You may disagree. So that means... I absolutely acknowledge that we need people who will do that job, you know, who will be politicians, who will stand up, you know, and, you know, I'm the generation that saw the first black politicians go into Parliament, people like Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott, and, you know, although I had my chance, really, quite a few of the women who came out of OAD, because we were like GLC and da da da, -da and race equality groups and all that, you know, we would have had that opportunity to, to take that path had we wanted to and I was I think partly because I was a teacher and I love teaching but partly because I think politics can be quite a dirty game I chose not to but I will always acknowledge that those people who are prepared to stick their head above the parapet and do those jobs you know love respect to them as long as they don't forget where they came from you know so no I wouldn't say to people disengage with it I think if if that's your, your, your bag, go for it, you know, if you want to engage with, with the mainstream party politics. Yeah, well, maybe one of us will rise up and take his place, you know. So that, that's all good. But um, having said that, we also need our grassroots community politics. And that's what keeps that other politics real, isn't it? You know, if you've got a good groundswell of ordinary, working class people or people who may not be working class but whose heart is in the right place and supporting the right causes then nothing can defeat us really because that's where the power lays and my feeling is we need people in both roles really but the role of our community activists and our grassroots activists is to a raise the issues that concern us but also ensure that people who claim to represent us are held to account Thank you so much for your talk. Uh, my name is Anne Wolf. I'm uh, doing my PhD in Leida. I had two really quick questions. The first is about the distinction between reactionary and radical struggle to the extent that there is one um, fighting for inclusion in the system on its existing terms versus fighting to change the system. How do you navigate that difference or that distinction if you do? And the second one was, uh, you mentioned growing up, um, or being born in the 50s and growing up in the 60s and 70s. Are there any lessons from that period of struggle that we might have forgotten? Thank you. Um, I don't really have an answer to that. I think, um, you know, if you look at some of the um, campaigns that are coming out of black radical feminism at the moment, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about sort of Angela Davis and her abolitionist, uh, politics and the, the, the growing support for this idea that we really need to start again, <laughs> scrap it all and start again. I have a lot of sympathy with that argument, I really do. And um, if I was asked to kind of say, well, which line do you stand on? I, I probably would 
would, would agree that we really need to go back to the drawing board and we're in that perfect storm moment, aren't we, where we really are in a position where we, we have um, a moment where we, we ought to be rethinking and going, going, going back and really re reassessing what, what matters. Um, having said that, we live in the society we live in. And um, without trying to sound too liberal, you know, that means we're part of it and we need to be constructive in our contribution in whatever way we can. Now, whether that means I'm going to go out there with banners and say, down with all prisons, let's close them, or whether that means I'm going to work in a prison as an educator, working with women who have, you know, had to struggle with illiteracy all their lives, which may be why they're in there in the first place, that's the choice you make, isn't it, as an individual? And I'm not necessarily even suggesting that they're mutually exclusive. I think we have to kind of straddle that line. Um, you know, I, I'm not wise enough to have the answer, to be honest with you, and um, I can only speak from my own experience. But as I say, I think if I was challenged, I'd say I'd want to be in that prison because I'd want to engage with those women and have that conversation with them and empower them to have other options in their lives. But I'd also want to maintain the argument that actually what a prison's about, why they're there in the first place, do we really need them, should we be starting at different points so we don't have to incarcerate people. I think if you, if you, if you are looking at what black women achieved, if, if we talk about the black women's movement, if you can even describe it as that, is that what made us different was that we didn't have that position that some radical white feminists were adopting even back in the day, which is no man in my house, don't want to deal with you, ain't talking to you, nothing to do with you. And, you know, really like, you know, I, I knew some women who like, if they had sons, you know, they were out of the house at the age of eight because by then they were turning into young men and they did, you know, what kind of reasoning is that? that? That made no sense to me. So as black women, one of the things that grounded our politics was the recognition that we were, dealing with the interface of race, sex, and class, race, gender, and class. We couldn't just focus on gender, which is what was traditionally happening in the white women's movement in its embryonic days, and we couldn't turn a blind eye to what was happening to our brothers, sons, husbands, fathers, you know, partners, whatever, in our own communities, uh, which impacted on our lives. So, um, yes, I will mention men, because um, you know, the brothers used to come to our conferences and they'd run the bookstall or they'd, they'd do the creche. The, the brothers who, who understood what was going on. There were others who said, oh, you're spitting the struggle and you, what are women organising? You're just, you're just imitating white women. We had all that as well. But, you know, the brothers who got it, um, they were allies in the sense that we talk about allyship today. And they continue to be allies. And I, I can, cannot personally perceive of a world where that wouldn't be the case. That's my view. Um, what else did I learn? Um, I learned about the importance of having um, an understanding of intersectionality, what's called intersectionality now, you know, the nuance and the, the different isms that make up the whole. I also, I think, um, felt that our politics benefited greatly from having an anti-imperialist perspective. In other words, a grounding in the histories and the experiences of the communities from which we hailed. Not necessarily from which we were born in, but from which we hailed. And that included an understanding of the, the absolute power of Pan-Africanism, um, the absolute power of internationalism, and the absolute power, as I say, and I said before, of focusing on our commonalities. If you think about OAD, we started off as the Organization of Women of Africa and African Descent. And those of you who've been to the BCA, the Black Cultural Archive, you'll see handwritten, I can see my own writing, you know, we've crossed out Africa and we put Asian because some Asian sister came up to us and, went, and she was an East African Asian. So she knew more about Africa than a lot of us. And she said, what about us? You know, and we had to do a double take and say, yeah, well, actually, you're right. You might experience racism or sexism in a different way because of your own cultural context or your own upbringing or whatever. But actually, the enemy is the same one. So let's make common cause. And where we can, we'll join hands. And where we can't, we'll agree to differ. Now, that was really powerful. And even people who were against that at the beginning, 
they kind of got it towards the end. So, um, yeah, I think um, without sort of, you know, hogging the whole of the last 10 minutes, those are the key lessons for me. One more question at the back. First of all, I wanted to say a big thank you to the organisers of the conference. I've never heard of this before. I've turned up and it's been fantastic. And thank you, Stella, as well, for your um, insights. And in particular, what I was really um, encouraged by was your, um, well, what I perceived as you weren't, you weren't for cancel um, culture and, um, or deplatforming. Because I was thinking what I've become quite concerned by, I seem to see it from an observer, not part of the sociologist society, this might be, um, is that this, if anyone feels upset or feels what we might term as hate, um, people are cancelled or people are um, kept from speaking. And I think the danger is, is quite clear in that you're not hearing other voices. I was very pleased that you actually said that. So it was great to come here and hear different voices. Um, so yeah, so my question then is, and that's already, um, you can probably infer it, is there a place for allowing space to understand the perspectives of people who may differ from us or who are against us in the, rather than saying, oh, I don't want to hear them, let's cancel them out, and so on and so forth. That's my question. Before you answer something, can I just ask something, just to make it clear in the question. When you say, when people are cancelled, what do you mean exactly, like tangibly? Can you just describe, if you could bullet point, what that actually means for you? Okay. So what I've seen is that for somebody has a different view from a popular view or a different um, and ideology. And what's a popular view? Sorry, just it can be, it can, it can be from lots of different topics. It can't, it's not just one set topic. And then if they um, say for lots of things that happen at universities, where you normally universities are places where you hear lots of different perspectives, and people are being cancelled or people or um, things are being said, oh, we can't host you here because of this or because of that. I don't think that's healthy in society. I, yeah. I hear you, and I'm just asking, so you're talking about academics mm -hmm. who are banned from speaking in university, just because it's because these, these conversations are for really, example, it's yes. really important, okay, so the question is, what do we do about academics who are not of, you said popular views? And popular, yes, or, or accepted by a certain group or by a certain whatever, it's not just academics, it's something that is quite common in society, even if it's on social media or if it's in university. I just think, I love having people who have a different perspective from me, and I don't think it's healthy to say, because I might be offended, I don't want to hear you. That's why I just want to hear your perspective. No, I completely hear you. My point about clarity is, on our podcast, we have to make sure they're really clear on language and meaning with this stuff, because it gets hijacked by the right very easily. Like, there's quite a lot of things you're talking about. Thank you. Um, I can only go back to what I said before, you know, um, I talked about working with young fascists, really, and um, the fact that they came out with outrageous stuff, you know? And you know what? I can't speak for everyone. And I'm not, you know, trying to present myself as, you know, broad-backed woman, you know? Yeah, it hurts sometimes, and yeah, sometimes people say outrageous things and you want to just tell them about themselves. But, um, you know, there's nothing more empowering than persuading that person to think differently. So, you know, I think your original question was like, is there, a, should, we, should there be a space to have those kinds of discussions? There has to be a space. I absolutely hear you. And, you know, not only in terms of what you were saying about the rights potential to hijack those discussions, but also the dangers of just having a free-for-all when anyone can say anything and, you know, um, anything goes. I, I, I'm absolutely not advocating that. I always, any time I've ever worked with any group of people, whether adults, police, United Nations or kids on the street, there's always a starting point to that discussion, which is, okay, where's our ground rules here? What, what is okay? And quite often the way you make people understand that something's unacceptable is you do what you do with your four-year-old child. You say, how would you feel if someone called you a nasty name? How would you feel if? You know, what if I said this about you? You can have that kind of reasoning with people. Now, I know you, 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 you were talking about academics, and I think that's a different challenge, actually, isn't it? Because academics have more of a, a forum and they have more power to enforce their views. But, you know, the only way you, you challenge um, views that are unhealthy or unjust or, or incorrect is by, you know, putting up an opposing argument. And if you just quash that argument, 
then where's the forum to have that discussion? And I don't work in universities, so I don't have any, um, you know, bright ideas about how you negotiate this. I, th I think it is a real challenge, but, you know, I do maintain that there has to be a space within the boundaries of mutual respect to have a discussion that allows people to say, I don't agree with you, or I think this. And for you to be able to say, well, how about thinking about it like this? That's the way to me that we've always, you know, brought people on board. And um, actually my experience of cancelling, you know, is that it just puts people on the defensive and just makes them entrenched. So that doesn't actually achieve what you want. But yeah, I mean, I have to say people in the universities are gonna have to work that one out because uh, I know exactly what you're talking about as well. Stella, how much energy should be used on convincing people that black lives do in fact matter? I like that question. Um, how much energy? The same energy we've always brought to that discussion. Black Lives Matter is just a slogan, isn't it? And if you track it back, as I said earlier, you know, the murder of George Floyd, um, the murder of Cherry Gross, you know, this is nothing new. So we have to continue to put energy into it. But here's the caveat. Which black lives matter, right? One of the things that really made me uncomfortable during that whole upswell of outrage about the murder of George Floyd, and I'm not any way, um, you know, hating on that. I'm, I was absolutely thrilled to see people of all colours and persuasions taken to the streets in the middle of lockdown, you know, to say, no, not in our name. So I'm not arguing against that. I would have some issue about the fact that his name came up in lights, whereas Breonna and the other women who've met similar deaths weren't quite as well known. But it is what it is. Um, when I say which black lives, though, I'm saying this. Is the murder of a black man on the streets of America any, does that matter any more than the deaths of, you know, countless black babies from preventable diseases? Or the deaths of people who are desperately trying to get across the Mediterranean or the English Channel because they need to get away from war or poverty or you know, whatever it is that they, they don't want their children to experience. Um, so my, my feeling is that if we are going to put our energy into Black Lives Matter, we need to join the dots. Because black lives ain't only in America, you know. You know, they're not just in America, they're not just on the streets of Britain. They're across this world. And increasingly, we are under siege. You know, if you look at what's happening, you know, um, climate change, I don't even have to tell you, you know better than I do. The things that are impacting on our lives, the quality of our lives, our, our, our possibilities, our potential for the future, they are so crucial that if we don't join up the debts, debt docks and we only get angry when some, something happens in our own backyard, we're no better than the people we refer to as NIMBYs. Does that phrase make sense? You know, not in my backyard. You know, it's all right taking up a placard and moaning when something happens on my backyard, but if it happens down the street, I'm not bothered. No, as I said earlier, in OAD, one of the things that really made us powerful, and it wasn't long-lived, you know, OAD. It only lasts about five years. But what made us powerful was always connecting what was happening here with what, with what was happening there. We had that slogan, didn't we? We are here because you were there. We're not here just because we chose to come here. We're here because you were there. You're still there now, you know? And um, I hope you've all read A Kick in the Belly. If you haven't, please go out. And I'm not saying you have to buy it. Go to the library, make sure they get it. You know, it doesn't, it's not about money, it's about reading. But one of the things I say in, in A Kick in the Belly is, you know, um, if we know our history, we know that they sold us guns and gin, yeah? They sold us guns and gin, or exchanged guns and gin, for our human resources. They're still doing that to this day, you know? May not call it guns, they might call it the arms trade. They may not call it gin, they might call it something else, but that's still going on. And those same African chiefs who sold us down the river 400 years ago are still selling, some of them, their people down the river now. So we need to join the dots across continents. We need to join the dots historically so we learn the lessons. What's the point of learning history if you don't apply it to the now? You know, that's my view. 
Um, it's not just like, oh, you know, look at me, I'm Lucy Worsby, I know everything about, you know, Henry VIII. I love her. I mean, I'm not, not, not in any way putting her down, but you know what I mean? It's not just for the sake of knowing history. What is the point of knowing that history if we don't apply the lessons of that history to our own experience now? So um, that's what I want to say. I think that, you know, there's a whole new generation of people um, of all colours, persuasions, backgrounds who are engaged with these issues, and we've only got to look around the hall today to see that. And, um, you know, um, we have to continue to put our energy into things like Black Lives Matter or whatever works for you because you can engage with these issues in different ways. You don't have to have that slogan or that, that placard. That There is an event at um, the National Maritime Museum on the 23rd of August. I've been doing some work with them on revolutionary black women because it's a very white male narrative. Obviously, Maritime Museum, it's going to be like that, but they're making an effort to change that narrative and the focus of that day will be on black women freedom fighters. So if you're available and you fancy a trip to Greenwich, you know, come down, we'll be running workshops, keynote speeches, all kinds of things. Be really, and we're gonna scatter petals on the Thames and name names. So yeah, it should be fun if you can make it. Um, um, yeah, that's what I was wanted to say. I just wanted to say that knowing that people like yourselves are prepared to travel across country, you know, to engage with these issues in the middle of your holidays and um, um, engage in a conversation is actually what gives me hope. Gives me hope. So good on you. Good on you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Oh, is this one? Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, just to wrap up, that yeah, this was part of my Connected Sociologies curriculum project. We've got a website where there's loads of free resources. Follow us on Twitter, C Sociologies, as in the letter C, not like look at C. If I'm, um, and then on Instagram, it's Connected Sock. And I want to just thank all the speakers that came down, because like all the academics, none of them got paid. And we've done four, we've done four years in a row. CETA over there. CETA's been to every single one we've done. And, like, and never, never taken a penny, never taken a penny with Kojo as well. And like, we did have a bit of budget for like, lunch and stuff, but it's a massive effort to like, give your time and come down and like, do a talk and put it on for people. So like, massive thank you to those um, speakers and to all the people that came, especially like, the three from uh, Milton Keynes at the front. What, what an effort. Come all the way down from Legends. Yeah, and the two from Derbyshire, I think they're at the back. What a big effort as well from them. And thanks to everyone that helped out with this, because no, again, like, none of them got paid. It's a massive effort to come and help. And I hope you lot enjoyed it. And, and thank sorry. you again to Spine Inside. Big round of applause. And Thank you for listening to Survive in Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 